As a science correspondent, I've been in touch with the fusion industry for well over a decade, and a lot has happened during that time. To some, fusion is an energy unicorn. You could spend all your life and all of your money tracking it, but you'll never harness it. To others, it's the solution the world has been waiting for. But for the majority, well, the majority seem to neither know nor care what fusion is. And it's high time that changed. My name is Steve Cowley. I'm the director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. Fusion is probably the perfect way to make energy, except for the fact that it's really hard to do. Fusion is safe. It doesn't produce any pollution, either in terms of greenhouse gases or in terms of long-lived radioactive waste. And it's compact. You don't have to use up lots of farmland or coastal cliffs or something. And therefore, I think once we go past the era of fossil fuels and into an era where a lot of energy is produced by renewables, the energy system will be a mixture of fusion to produce what we call a baseload of energy, um, a sort of constant energy that you can switch on and off when you please, and renewables, which were in some sense at the whim of nature. We can't have solar power without the sun shining and we cannot have wind power without the wind blowing. Those systems coupled will make for a sustainable energy source that'll take us until the planet is no more. Now, the first question that springs to mind when a lot of people hear about fusion is, what the heck is fusion? I'm Ian Chapman. I'm the chief executive of the UK Atomic Energy Authority. At its basic level, fusion is sort of the opposite of what happens in fission. In nuclear fission, we take very heavy things like uranium or plutonium and we split them apart and that releases energy. In fusion, we take very light things and force them together and that also releases energy. And this is happening in the centre of all of our stars and it's the root cause of essentially all the sources of energy that we have in the world today. And we know it works. I mean, our, our sun has been fusing away quite happily for a long time. The big challenge is can we replicate the conditions of the sun and make fusion happen here on Earth? Nick Hawker, CEO and CTO of First Light Fusion. The engineering of how you do that is one of the major challenges. And I kind of have joked before saying, Rocket science is easy. Rocket engineering is really, really hard. But for fusion, both bits are really hard. The reason why I think fusion is the hardest problem in the world is actually the coupling between the two. You can't just solve the physics problem in isolation from the engineering problem and worry about the engineering issues afterwards. Because if you do that, you might introduce something which has a huge benefit for the plasma physics, but then ultimately introduces a massive challenge or massive compromise in the, in the engineering of the power plant. Now, of course, there are lots of different ways of going about doing fusion. The favourite at the moment being pursued by most research projects and particularly the government funded ones are tokamak based. So you basically have a container in which fusion occurs and uh, you might have a toroidal or to me a ring donut shaped container or you may have a spherical they which to me is a jam donut shaped container and they have their own advantages and disadvantages particularly in terms of of size of scale but there are other ways as well like projectile fusion for example so it's starting to turn into a kind of a race isn't it who's going to win 
I'm Bogdan Gadjea, I'm the lead analyst for the power and mobility area in BP's technology futures team. It is a race, that's for sure. We have mapped out the whole technology landscape when it comes to nuclear fusion, and there are many, many different paths. The Tokamak path is the most advanced one, where, and most of the funding is going that route. The other path on paper, they have advantages and disadvantages, just like all technologies, but we found them to be significantly less advanced and less well-funded than the traditional tokamak direction. So overall, we think, in spite of all the shortcomings, the most likely path to succeed first will go through the uh, tokamak route and the magnetic confinement. Mark Henderson, Electron Cyclotron Section Leader at ETER. However, we don't know today what is the best solution. So it is to the benefit of our future generations, it's good that we are looking at all these different options because we don't really know which one is the best one. And so we're trying to, in a sense, cover as many bases as we can within the available funding to explore all the different varieties of magnetic field topologies, sizes of machines, strengths of the magnetic fields, to find out what would be the optimum in going toward a fusion device in the future. So what is ITER? ITER is a conglomeration of seven parties, uh, the US, Europe, China, South Korea, Russia, Japan, and India. And we are working together to build the first fusion device that aims at having a net energy production. ITER does not produce electricity, so it is an experimental device. So our, our goal is not really to generate electricity, it is to better understand and, and make the step between the physics to the engineering. Christophe Junion, Atkins Engineering Company, working on the ITER project. ITER is really about creating a small sun on Earth. This is a facility inside this tokamak. Uh, the scientists are creating an environment where Plasma is going to go up to 150 million degrees. This plasma will be controlled by magnets with magnetic fields of order of 12 Tesla. It's an enormous magnetic field. Uh, this magnetic field itself to be created will, will require superconducted magnets, which themselves will have to be kept to extremely cold temperatures. This million pieces jigsaw puzzle of absolute science genius is starting to be dropped into place. Ian Chapman. It requires a, a lot of energy to, to get the reaction going. In ITER, we'll be aiming to put 50 megawatts in to start to heat the fuel up to get it 10 times hotter than the centre of the sun. And then it will produce 500 megawatts out. 500 megawatts is like the energy consumption of Liverpool, that sort of size city. This has been a problem, hasn't it? This ignition phase, getting to that. Yeah, we know fusion works. We've achieved fusion in what is currently the biggest fusion device in the world. It's a machine called JET. And nearly 20 years ago, we produced 16 megawatts of fusion power from JET, which is like a few wind turbines. So as a proof of principle, but we had to put 25 megawatts in to get the reaction going in the first place. So we needed to get to the point where we get a lot more energy out than we put in in the first place. We know how to do this. We just had to make a bigger machine. ITER is that bigger machine. I'm completely convinced it will work um, and it will demonstrate that you can harvest fusion power on a commercial scale. So what are the cost challenges in achieving fusion? Our current view is that it is most likely to see the first fusion plants being built at gigawatt scale. 
so the capital cost of building that project will be phenomenal and most importantly time it will take from the start of construction to the completion. ITER is not due to be completed until 2025 and the first fusion gain experiment we hope to achieve is in 2035 and compare that with a solar PV farm where you can build it and start producing energy within six months. You deploy your capital and immediately you start producing. Nuclear fusion is quite different. You start spending a lot of money and you'll only produce energy in maybe 10 years' time. And that will be a big, big challenge to drive costs down. I think one of the frustrations that we have in our economic competitiveness is that we only measure the costs associated with producing the energy and we fail to weigh in the costs associated with cleaning up the energy. Now, of course, ITER is not designed to be commercially viable, but it's designed to show how a commercial tokamak would work. And ITER's target is to inject 50 megawatts of heat and generate 500 megawatts of heat in return. Of course, Heat isn't equal to power. You can only extract about 40% of the energy from heat as power, which is a big discount. So with a spherical tokamak, which is a different design, what's possible there, do you think? I'm David Kingham. I'm Executive Vice Chairman of Tokamak Energy. So that sounds pretty good gain. However, generating the 50 megawatts of input power does cost more than 50 megawatts of electricity. It's about a break-even system by the time you consider all the efficiencies of the system. Now, on a spherical tokamak, there's an important property that reduces the need for input power. So the input power, instead of being 50 megawatts, would be something more like 5 megawatts on a comparable spherical tokamak. We think that's absolutely crucial for commercial viability of fusion to get the inherent device as efficient as possible. So ITER is uh, an example of uh, a conventional tokamak. It's a big vote of confidence that the tokamak is the right sort of basic configuration to use. But we think the way in which the spherical tokamak naturally requires less input energy is a big game changer. Combined with the high temperature superconductors, that's what makes it feasible for us to think about fusion power on the grid by 2030. Steve Cowley. So this is the real question for fusion now. Is it going to be possible to do it? Because we make something as big as ITER, we'll do fusion. The question is, can we make it cheap enough so that people will be willing to pay that amount of money for their electricity? And I don't actually know the answer to that question. I think we will one day, but it's going to take some innovation. Uh, energy systems as a whole around the world are tending towards being smaller in scale in order to give flexibility in energy generation. And if the power plants have to be enormous and produce enormous amounts of electricity at a time, it's not going to fit very well into the economy. And so one of the things we're trying to do is basically go smaller, faster, cheaper. So we have had a study looking at how could fusion compete with the lowest cost power supplies in the long term future. 
And that would need a, an aggressive approach of cost reduction, of modular manufacture, so we can see how to get into the right cost range to compete with existing carbon producing fuels, and also to ensure that energy is not too expensive for the whole world to use. I mean, it's no good decarbonizing our economy in the Western world and then finding that in developing countries, they still have to burn coal. Deuterium is the most advanced fuel for fusion in terms of the research and development. But how available are deuterium and tritium? One of the less well understood elements of nuclear fusion, typically it is presented as the process that powers our sun. Our sun is powered by hydrogen, and hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. But it benefits from huge gravity forces to make that happen. We do not have that gravity force here on Earth, so we need to compensate using a high temperature. On Earth, it is not practical to do nuclear fusion using the uh, normal hydrogen isotope, which is the abundant one in uh, water. So we have to use a different uh, pair of hydrogen isotopes, and that's the deuterium and tritium. Deuterium is not abundant on Earth, but it's plenty. However, tritium does not occur on Earth, and the ways to manufacture it today is basically in a nuclear fission reactor. So the source of tritium is very, very limited indeed. And the nuclear fusion reactor to work, you need to consume that tritium. Now, the only way you can run a fusion reactor as base load and sustain that indefinitely is to also generate tritium as you burn it. And you can do that by using a liquid metal blanket that contains lithium. And actually lithium is not enough. You need to add other elements as well. So it gets quite complicated and there are still some significant technical challenges on this uh, lithium blanket and uh, tritium extraction from it. Of course, up until very recently, all of the work in fusion has been experimental or, or research work. But now we're seeing an industry develop with more private funding, more startups getting involved. And that's often when industries are at their most exciting. So how are you feeling about the new fusion industry right now? Yeah, it's great to see uh, fusion industry emerging from being largely publicly funded fusion research over the last oh, 50 years. And I think the, the private interest is coming partly because of people appreciate the need for new energy technologies if we're really going to tackle deep decarbonisation. It's also driven by new technology emerging. All of these enable more rapid innovation than was previously possible. I think it is great to see a lot of uh, startups. The most exciting part for me would be to see somebody finally achieving uh, what we call fusion gain, and that is extracting more energy than they have to put in. And how will we know when fusion has reached maturity? I think 
until we have four or five commercial scale nuclear fusion plants, we haven't fully reached maturity. And we think that will be well beyond 2050. Christophe Junior. It's a long road ahead of us. To become a mature technology, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require substantially more time. It's going to require substantially more development of those programs. And critically, it's going to require the creation of a market for fusion machine, a market which values carbon-free, controllable energy enough for people to make the investment required to develop those enterprises, those prototypes, to the point where they can be industrially viable. So for you, what do you think is the ideal future energy mix? Right now, the cost of wind and solar has plummeted and is going to be very, very low. The problem with is, you know, the intermittency and the storage, not over a day or two, but storage over a month, over six months, where batteries, I don't believe, will be effective. And the fusion is what we call addressable. So you can ramp it up when it's needed and you can ramp it down when it's not needed. So the ideal mix will be to have some solar, some wind and some fusion. And our energy will still have an intrinsically rather intermittent character. And I think that there is going to be a premium on industries that can adjust to the intermittency of energy. Now, you don't want intermittency of energy in your house because you want to turn the lights on every night. But if you're making, say, ammonia, you may want to make your ammonia only when energy is really cheap, when, for instance, wind turbines are producing too much energy. I'm very convinced that the 2020s is the decade that the physics problem is going to be solved. All the startups, everyone's looking for a plan to demonstrate that faster than ITER. But if you look at ITER, it's going to be finished by 2025. Now, they currently don't plan to do full power shots until 2035. So I am of the opinion that they need to take a bit more machine risk and they need to get through that plan a bit faster. But in principle, they could do those full power shots this decade and they could prove the physics problem once and for all. If you're just going to contribute to solving climate change, what we need is in the 2040s, we need 10, 20, 30 power plants being put on the grid. One power plant isn't going to make a difference. Ian Chapman. Fusion offers huge potential, just huge potential. And I think the, the growing realisation that climate change is happening all around us and that we need to do something about our energy mix gives fertile ground for increasing the public's realisation that fusion can be part of that mix. And then the job is on us within the fusion community to show that we are delivering and that we are producing fusion power and that we are demonstrating that we are progressing on the pathway to delivering fusion electricity so that people turn their light switch and, and it's powered by fusion. So although for many fusion's still a long way off in terms of flicking that switch at home, for others fusion is a daily reality because they work on it, they've watched it happen or at least they've admired that amazing glowing confined plasma in the tokamak. It's not some energy unicorn, but a potential low-carbon candidate to go into the energy mix. You can do it, but will it get done? Only time will tell. This was a BB Technology Outlook production. Focus on Fusion Podcast.